Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Jim Knight, culture god, public speaker and absolute force of nature. Coming up on today's show, Jim talks us through the serious questions he gets asked before taking a job. What other topics do you do? Do you do any consulting? And what kind of hair care products do you use? Phil compares his vocal capability to this. Sometimes I know that I can sound like an unexcited Andy Murray. And Jim demonstrates that this might not be like any chat we've ever done. Live and let die. And there's like explosions. All that and so much more as Jim talks us through his incredible story so far. In addition, a big thank you to Jim for sharing some amazing content on business culture. Not to be missed. Don't forget, we launch a new episode each week telling the amazing stories that happen throughout hospitality. So please do subscribe to the show and leave us a written review across your favourite podcast app. Please also give us a like and a share across any of your social channels. Let's share those stories as far and wide as we can. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, your host Phil Street. Today's guest, well I'm delighted to welcome to the show someone who until a couple of weeks ago to be honest, I'd never actually heard of, so please forgive me for that, Jim. All good. You, you might be listening to this somewhere else around the world and not have heard of him either. I guarantee you by the end of today that you will know who he is. In short, training and development veteran of 30 years, 30 plus years, I think actually, podcaster, speaker, best-selling author, as well as just being quite an incredible beacon of energy, Jim Knight, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Phil. I appreciate a bunch and, uh, you know, pleasure to meet your audience as well from a distance. But uh, thanks, man. I really appreciate the setup. No worries at all. So just for everybody around the world, whoever may be listening, just tell everybody who you are and what you do. Yeah. Um, like you said, Jim Knight, um, you know, I started off really in, I think, music and education and and ultimately evolved into hospitality. So I'm a former substitute middle school teacher. So in the public, uh, you know, public school arena, I love doing that, but just sort of stepped in to help out other teachers and wound up uh, staying there for a few years and ultimately became head of training and development for Hard Rock International. So I think most of your your people will know that as hard rock cafes and hotels and casinos and live music venues. But I do have a music degree and thought, geez, you know, I, I, I've got this music background. I've got a little bit of some education background and now I've got 20 years of hospitality. And I sort of put all that together to, to do what I do right now. And you said it best. I mean, I'm a, I'm a keynote speaker. I deliver about, I don't know, 75 to 80 engagements a year for various companies and industries. Yeah. Thanks also for saying bestseller. I'm an author with my first book. We call it Culture That Rocks. And that's a how-to business book for, I think, really helping brands create, maintain, and even revolutionize their internal environment, their company culture, if it's a little bit sideways. And finally, I'm a podcaster. I have a great weekly free leadership show called Thoughts That Rock, where we always have on a guest and we exchange best pieces of advice uh, that they've ever received. So a little bit of everything now um, to try and reach as many people as possible. But um, yeah, starting off with music, education, hospitality, and now I get a chance to do a little bit more with a louder voice. 
Yeah. Do you know what? There's nothing quite like a weekly podcast show, is there? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some work in there, but uh, it, it actually has uh, become a lot of fun. I mean, I'm glad that uh, we did it, but uh, we, we definitely like doing it, don't we, Phil? Yeah. Well, actually, I've been amazed actually how much fun it is. Initially, when I had the idea for this show, it was about trying to send a, a much better message to the world about hospitality and just... Yeah really getting behind the stories of, of uh, all the great work I love it. that does. But actually, I mean, with every person that I speak to, uh, you the, the learning experience is phenomenal uh, with it as well. It's just been, it's been a, a hell of a ride so far. Well, I love what you do. And I'm glad that you're focusing on this industry that uh, obviously, you know, I grew up in and, and we've, we both have fallen madly in love with. And when we can put a white hot spotlight on it, particularly now these days, I mean, when you, when you're not able to go out and enjoy hospitality, when pretty much everything has been shut down, you know, at least people, by the time you're listening to this, I would assume you're going through or coming out of the whole, you know, coronavirus issue. Boy, do you start to sit back and think about how much we appreciate, you know, the, the product and the service that is being delivered, that totality of the experience that we just can't get doing takeout and curbside service. It's yeah. not the same as actually being immersed in the business. So I appreciate you at least for your show and, and propping up uh, this, this fantastic industry. That's very kind. Very kind indeed. Yeah. Great. Well, um, the two things that struck me about, cause I, I watched Jim on a, a webinar that was run by EXP 101 a couple of weeks ago. It was the first time that I'd uh, heard of you and, and seen you in action, but there was two things that really struck me about that. One, the hair, we've got to talk about the hair because yeah. I've, I've actually not <laughs> do. seen a hairstyle like that since seeing the Statue of Liberty. I think you're you're it for go and look him up, anybody that's listening, because um, I think your hair is awesome. Yeah, you know it's uh it's probably one of my most requested questions um, uh, is about my hair at the very end of a session. I tend to get people that will ask <laughs> one of three questions, you know. What other topics do you do? Do you do any consulting? And what kind of hair care products do you use? You know, that, <laughs> that, that tends to come up quite a bit. So yeah, if you can't see me, I've got some pretty high, it's probably, I don't know, three inches high, spiky brown hair. Um, and it's, it's all about being razor cut and uh, this product that's basically glue. And uh, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, it's become a trademark for me. I don't know what would happen to me if I actually lost my hair. I'd I'd be devastated. I'd lose my uh, I'd lose all power. I can only dream of having uh, of hair like that. My uh, I, I'm not sure I've ever sported a hairline like yours, to be honest. But um, but no, I salute you for that. It's also I suppose part of your brand now as well. That, like people recognize you for it. They do. And, and it's so funny. I've always been known for my hair, but it was almost the exact opposite if you go back about 15 years. So bef before this current style that I have, I had a super long mullet. And and I know when I say that, it probably people are thinking, you know, business in the front, party in the back, you know, this stringy hair. But I actually had a really awesome, you know, mane, if you will, in the back that I could almost sit on my hair. So my hair didn't go up, it went down. And when I cut it, into this current style, people freaked out because they knew me for my long hair, which was fine for the brand that I worked at. But now for sure that I, I get probably more recognition and maybe even a few gigs from time to time 
because of these uh, these spiky uh, the, these locks. So yeah. I'm going to hold on to as long as I can. But it is about branding, Phil, isn't it? I, you know, even in my hair, I'm trying to make sure that I'm I'm a little bit irreverent and unpredictable. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I suppose subconsciously, I've 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 branded myself as hospitality. Yeah. In the title of the show, hospitality meets, but it's actually me that's meeting. Well, I'm not meeting anybody at the moment, but um, when we get back to meeting, yeah, I don't know whether I'm uh, a genius or just incredibly arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> the second point that um, that grabbed me was your energy. You're clearly doing. I think anyway, what you were born to do. Awesome. It just comes across with such authenticity. And, you know, you, you talk about uh, the subjects that you talk about, and we'll, we'll go into that in a bit more depth across this chat. But with just, as I say, authenticity, energy, you know, you clearly believe in what you're, what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that a lot. I mean, I, I really, you know, I can talk about my long and winding road and and how I got to do what I'm doing right now. But the crux of it is I just discovered along the way that I really do have one true strength. You know, I, I, I'm probably mediocre at a lot of things, but there's one thing I can do very well, and that's hold an audience. And so, you know, the performer in me wants to come out regardless, whether it's a webinar, a podcast, whether we're in person and doing something instructor led in general, I just want to be of service to other people. And I think there's a, there's a little bit of edutainment that comes with that. And, you know, I want to stay true to myself. I want to be authentic, but definitely the energy level, I think, you know, maybe it's my own personal opinion and maybe now you've joined into it as well. I think people are looking for a breath of fresh air versus the same old, same old when it comes to content delivery. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I really focus my energy as much as my hair might be part of the brand that that energy is also a part of it. I want people to remember fondly about the stuff that I talk about. And if I can do that in a way that I think helps people retain information, then, then we've all won. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you mentioned in that little um, message there that you can you can take us through the long and winding road. Take us all the way back to the beginning. How did you kind of, well, where did you start? How did you kind of meander into to what you do now? Yeah. So, um, you know, my, the, the beautiful thing is, especially on hospitality meets, it's perfect because my first job was in hospitality. You know, I worked basically, it's, it's probably a little bit different than most people think, but I worked in a snack bar in a local theme park. So uh, I live in central Florida in the United States, so right in the Orlando area. And as you can imagine, between Walt Disney World and Universal Studios and SeaWorld and a bunch of the other bigger parks, we've got a lesser known theme park called Gatorland Zoo. So I worked at an alligator farm um, and my very first job was working in the snack bar. I sold uh, you know, a whole bunch of hot dogs and sodas and things like that, but also alligator meat which I would eat. Right. Um, and so that was interesting for my very first job. And I sold fish and, uh, and I drove a little miniature train there for guests and actually wound up working for the alligator insemination program, which I don't like to talk about very often, yeah. but you know, just knowing that my first job you know, was, uh, was in hospitality, I think was really a good first foray. And I did that for three years. But again, I, I mentioned before that, you know, I had a love and a background for music. And so, you know, starting probably back in high school, 
I was interested in performing. Uh, I was always attracted and still am actually to people who can sing and dance and act or speak. If, if you've got that, that DNA running through your veins, like that's, that's interesting for me. And, and I wanted to do something like that. So I went to college on a music scholarship and I did get my, uh, my AA, my associate of arts in music performance and education. Um, but it was formal training, you know, very, uh, you, you would think I'd be rock and roll, Phil, but it was really classical and formal and, and opera. Like I can still do a wedding and a funeral, but, uh, you know, hanging out with my friends who are actually real honest to goodness rock stars is really sort of a dream, uh, maybe at this point a pipe dream for me. But, you know, that that was still good. It, it uh, For me, I, I discovered that, you know, I wanted to to really be that performer. Um, but I also noticed while I was at college that to be successful, you had to be great. And uh, and I was just OK. I, I wasn't really a monster in that field like you really need to be uh, to, to really make it as a performer. So uh, they, they say those they can't do teach. So I changed direction in college and I focused on children's education. And that's when I became a substitute middle school teacher. And I did that for, as I said, six years. And I did that um, for as long as I could. But, you know, if you're if you're in public education, you know, in the summer, there's no salary. You know, teachers need to figure out a way to, to make money or, or hopefully they've, they've saved up over the, the course of the school year. So I, I needed a second job and I applied as a host at the local Hard Rock Cafe now in Orlando. That was one of the biggest restaurants in the world. And at that time, it was the most successful building on the planet in hospitality. So, wow. you know, especially for your audience, I think they would appreciate this. If you think about we, th- this thing is uh, it was shaped like a guitar and it was butted up right next to Universal Studios. So you would get this massive swath of people all day long. And we pumped about. 7,000 people a day through that building doing $35,000 hours, which is oh, unheard of in the restaurant yeah. industry, right? I mean, th- this That's thing will still, even today, will do something yeah. like $42, 43000000 million a year. This is a restaurant, mind you. So, you know, it was really fun to be a part of that. And, and I actually just, I, I fell in love with the brand and the culture, actually. And, um, you know, it was great because I was able to combine my music and education background. I, I got a chance to, as I mentioned, uh, with the hair, I got to look the way I wanted to. And I was in a music orientated environment. I got to actually travel the world. You know, I opened up a ton of different properties. Again, this was as a host when I was just a kid. And by the way, someone's paying me. You know, it was fantastic to, to, to yeah. be in an environment like that. So. You know, I'd worked in some other restaurants as well. Uh, you, you might not know Olive Garden. That's a it's a U.S. based Italian restaurant here in the states. Right. Um, I really did just fall madly in love with the hard rock culture, and that's that's really what started me down that that long and winding road. I like to say, especially with organizational culture. So, you know, what happened is um, I started liking that that rock and roll night job a lot better than my day job. And after a few <laughs> years, um, you know, of being a full-time line level employee and, and doing openings, um, I became a manager. I eventually ran um, shifts and, and and was able to to get a hold of, of a business that was doing the amount of volume that it was doing. And it was kind of cool at the end of the night, just 
locking the thing up at two, three in the morning going, I ran that. I, I ran the heck out of that that business. Yep. Again, millions of dollars each year. So that was a lot of fun. But, you know, my heart was always in the um, in the education space. And so I eventually ran training and development functions for the brand and just wound up staying at Hard Rock for 21 years. And so I got a chance to oversee all the learning and the cultural initiatives for all of the all of the brand extensions. So again, those are hotels, casinos, live music venues, in addition to all these restaurants that are around the world. And I just discovered that during my entire career in hospitality, I, I had always reported up through human resources. So a lot of my focus uh, was on people and, and people-oriented stuff. Um, but the whole time in that industry, I networked like crazy and, and got exposure to different brand cultures. Um, you know, some of the, the brands, you know, you might not know from an association standpoint, Chart, which is a, they're, they're a hospitality training association. Probably some of the biggest restaurants in the world belong to that group. Sherm, you probably do know, which is very HR, human resource oriented. Uh, the National Restaurant Association. So I would I would go to these associations and try and figure out who's smarter than I am. And I would hang out with them and just populate as much into my head as possible because I did know that at some point I was gonna I was gonna want a career change. And, and mostly because, you know, after 20 years, I guess I needed to be challenged a little bit more, number one. Uh, you know, yeah. I'd won a bunch of awards in print and video and e-learning and instructor-led. And my team was so awesome. And, and quite honestly, I, I was at that time a, a senior director and everybody below me were managers. There were no directors. And I thought there's a big chasm that uh, that are that are ready to be uh, promoted. And I'm probably in the way. Like I needed to step aside so that they could be more developed. And I started to have a bigger calling to want a louder voice in the world. Um, and like I said, I just, I, I discovered that my one true great strength was holding an audience's attention. So I thought, geez, I think I could do this and, and make a living out of it. And, and by the way, Phil, I'd, I'd started speaking on the side. I can actually go all the way back and pinpoint. I, I now discovered it was around 2003 when I started getting requests from people that just wanted somebody from the brand to come in and talk about hard rock. Like it wasn't, Right. wasn't anything educational. It wasn't about uh, learning a skill. They just wanted to hear the story. And I know that your world is all about storytelling. And so I thought, yeah, this is fun. It's just sort of a, it, it's a fun day one orientation, but I'm going to truncate it down to an hour, hour and a half and do it for somebody who's asking me to do it over lunch um, while they're on vacation in uh, in Orlando. And so that's what I started doing on the side. And sure enough, People started to wonder, geez, can you do that for, for my company and bring it back to me? And how much do you charge? And that's sort of how it started all the way back in 03. And when I left Hard Rock in 2012, um, I, I think I was probably up to one a month. I was probably doing 10, 11, maybe 12 gigs a year um, without even really trying. It was just sort of falling into my lap. And uh, when I left, I was fairly well known in hospitality, at least in the States, like you said, maybe not so much yet in in the, the UK, but certainly over here. It coming, was very well it's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it, it's coming, right? Um, yeah. But you know, I I want I really want to go vertical. So this is the other thing. Although, thank you so much for for doing what you do for hospitality. I felt like I wanted to start going vertical and getting into other industries. And even now, 
um, all of these engagements that I do, like I said, 70, 75, 80 of these, the majority of which are outside of hospitality. It's auto mechanics and insurance and banking and funeral directors are some of my biggest clients. Clowns. Wow. You know, if somebody is having a meeting, if there's an association and they need a speaker, that's usually what I'm I'm going after. So, and and right now I'm exclusive with the speaker bureau, so they're able to to find some of the craziest groups you could ever think of, and uh, and they get together and, and talk about some of the same stuff that we talk about in our business. So, yeah. you know, in 2012, I like to say I retired from corporate life to do my own thing, to speak and write and do a little bit of consulting, and now I feel like I have greater influence and impact on on other companies and. You know, geez, I aspire to just be a catalyst and a thought starter for other companies and hopefully help them be more effective and sustainable. So that that's sort of the long answer. The short answer is I get a chance to combine that music education and hospitality to to really, I think, help set the stage for me to have a louder voice in the world, basically. Yeah. Well, you're you're certainly certainly from the outside looking in, uh, achieving that. Um, and I know the the few people that I've spoken to who've come into contact with you certainly speak very very highly about the work that you do. And I find it interesting that you've kind of diversified away from hospitality in the sense that I suppose from you know your your key thing that you you talk about is is culture. Well, one of the key things that you talk about is culture and. I mean, that's important in any business, right? I mean, it's not just uh, a hospitality exclusive thing. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I can't say it's the most important um, just because I talk about it. I do think people are starting to realize that now, you know, and I, I really do believe, um, and, and and this is so funny that, that you bring this up. I do talk about culture. It's going to be my number one hit probably forever. People still want me yeah. to talk about service or employee engagement or leadership and, and performance management, but all roads tend to lead back to culture. And I think, you know, I recently spoke in an industry conference where the, the company Snag a Job, you might know them as well in your world, your field, um, they reported in their annual survey that culture is now the number one reason why potential employees consider a restaurant job. You know, it, it's followed, you know, somewhere down the road, you'll hear about growth opportunity or flexibility and, and hours. They might even talk about location and position and pay and all that stuff, all of that contributes, yeah. but culture, number one reason. And I start to think, you know, of course, from a, from a customer standpoint, they only want to spend money where a, a company is going to make them feel good, right? They want memorable experiences, which are only going to be comprised of great service and quality product and a fun atmosphere and, and a fair price, of course, you know, they, they make purchasing decisions now based off of the emotional connection. And if a company makes the customer feel good about their interaction with the brand and the consumer's perception is, geez, there's real value in what I'm spending here. Well, then they're going to come back. They're going to spend more money. They're going to talk about you favorably, right? And they're going to influence yeah. other people to do the same. Well, now internally, so this, this is where I think about culture is really prevalent from an internal perspective. Employees, I think, have the same touch points. You know, businesses that are, financially stable and, and they're educational and they're opportunistic and they're fun and clean and safe and all those things, right? Th those are healthy environments where people want to work. And no doubt if you're in that environment, 
morale is going to be higher. Turnover is going to be lower. You know, the culture is just flat out, I think, envied by other people. And so those companies that then create and foster that type of environment, they're the ones that become known as the attractive place to work. And if, I mean, if anybody even decides to leave the organization, well, then if you got an awesome culture, you get a chance to choose the best talent available versus, you know, being at the mercy of just a weak talent pool. So I, I think yep. that brands can consistently deliver on those fundamental platforms. And if they do that, if they create that strong culture, and you definitely know it, by the way, when you see it, when you feel it, you experience it. If you do that right, you're, you're going to produce some Herculean results and you're going to perpetuate the brand for all time. And so believe me, I, I think that culture in every way possible does matter where maybe let's be honest, back in the day, you know, let's go back 20 years. I could have thrown down the culture card with some executive and say, geez, we ought to do this because it'd be cool and fun. And it's the right thing to do. You know, that, that it's laughable now, if it's not yeah. really tied <laughs> to business results and it's not really thought out strategically, you know, I think people don't have, they, they don't put any stock in it. There's no merit in it. But now, I do believe that regardless, e even if an executive doesn't focus or believe in it, and, and I find that hard to believe now, I think CEOs and founders and owners, they get it. There's way too many awesome examples of companies that we know of that you can point to and say, that's an awesome culture. And it's not just because of their product or because they were first to the market or first on the scene or whatever it is. So, you know, I know that's yeah. a long answer as well, but I do think it is absolutely critically important to get that thing right. You do that right. You're, you're going to be here forever. And regardless yeah. of what kind of circumstances are going on around us. Absolutely. And it would be the, um, it would be the death of people like me. And I mean that in a, in a positive way, because the, um, you're, the, the turnover of um, of employees will be so less that um, you know, engaging somebody like me, a recruiter for finding somebody for your business, obviously comes at a cost. Yeah, but um, right. it's just that's where a lot of the the return of an, on investment can come from, I suppose, when you focus on culture. And I, and I see it firsthand. There are companies out there who you just know have a great, great culture because we just never see any CVs from that business. That's right. Um, you know, they're um, they're always there, and when you get one, you're like, "Oh wow, okay, what did they do wrong?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or something like that. You know, you don't even see help wanted or now hiring, and you know, the, you you literally have to mine for the position, and it ought to be really hard yeah. to to get and land a gig at those jobs because, you know, you, you should go through the ringer and ultimately say, "I made it. I'm here. I'm part of the tribe now." I mean, it was tough to get in. But I'm here and and you, you then create brand ambassadors and, you know, that just leads to a whole bunch of different stuff. And they're only going to hire people that are like minded like that. And, you know, in fact, it makes our job as leaders a little bit easier if somebody doesn't actually fit in from a competence or a character or a culture fit. I call those the three C's. Well, then the team members will vote them off the island for you. Right. It's a self-managed yeah. environment. And so there's so many positive things that come out of it. And again. I do believe there's probably people listening right now to your show thinking, well, that's just the big company. That's just the big brands. It's not. It's a decision. You know, if you want it to be so, you can make it so. And there's some things that you can work on. And, you know, it's not just me. There's a litany of people that can help you out there, you know, focus on these things. But 
I happen to talk about it and and I write about it and uh, and, and you know I study brands that actually do it well. So the the problem is I I do still think that people aren't exactly sure what it is. You know they confuse culture with uh, with what I think people a lot of times confuse it with, which is heritage. I think they they think about the past, they think about this story, they reflect back on the good old days and the way things used to be and and how cool the organization was right when it started. But the problem is it's such a nebulous, esoteric word, right? You can't see culture, not physically. You can't put your hands on it. Doesn't really show up like on a, on a PL statement, but I ultimately believe that it does exist. And it really is in my mind, it's just a collection of people. It's a collection of individuals who each have some unique behaviors. And these behaviors I think are, you know, they're either awesome or they're not. And when you, whoever's working in the business at that moment, at this time, right now, that is your culture. And so it, it it's not, it's not the, the product or the building or the logo or the color palette or your tools and processes and systems. I'm sure some of that, when you aggregate it all together, contributes a little bit, but it's always about the humans. And, and I will, regardless of what kind of session I'm doing, I sort of give that same analogy. Let's just say I love all those things that I just rattled off, but I don't like you. I don't like the people. I don't like the leadership and boom, out. Everybody's gone. I fire all these people and replace you with a bunch of other people. Have I changed the culture? I totally have versus the yeah. opposite. Let's say I leave all these great people but I move the deck chairs around and I make some changes to all the stuff that I mentioned. I haven't really made any massive, you know, sweeping changes. And so, you know, the, the product and environment are part of it, but every time somebody joins or leaves the band or the brand in this case, the culture changes immediately. So the goal is get these awesome rock stars to stay with you as awesome as possible. And, um, you know, as often as you can, and you're going to have a fantastic culture. So I went off yep. on a little bit of a tangent, but I do think that people struggle with defining culture, but it goes right back to your previous question, which is it's critically important. And if you get that right, you're going to be around for a long, long time. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, for sure. I want to uh, actually just something that popped into my head uh, just as we were talking there. When I was researching you, your music degree, and this is you talk about tangents. I'm absolutely wonderful at just going off on a completely different tangent. Perfect. We might uh, give me for that. <laughs> um, did I read it correctly that you that there was a vocal performance element to that degree? Yeah. So I'm a singer uh, by trade, and again, uh, very formal, very classical. Um, so I, I can do a wedding or a funeral if, if somebody asked me to do an Ave Maria or Lord's Prayer or something like that. But yeah, that when you go and get a music degree, you have to be able to play or use a musical instrument, your voice being one. So I, I, uh, I faked my way the best I could through keyboard. I wish I would have continued to play piano, but uh, I don't play any instruments, unfortunately. That's one of my big regrets in life. I wish I would have learned to to play guitar like a lot of my friends, but I was a vocalist and again, very formal trained. So uh, unfortunately yep. I, I don't get invited up on the stage with my rock and roll buddies, uh, but I, I can hang in some karaoke from time to time. <laughs> I just, I wondered if the vocal performance element had anything to do with your, your voice capability when you're like, you know, I, I suppose knowing how to 
use it properly when you get on stage and do a speaking gig or 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 whatever or if it's just one of those things that's completely uh coincidental uh, you know that's a good question i've never thought about that i guess in my early days not only singing but also acting i was probably in some 20 different community theater never never did anything big but when you've got to project, when you've got to have stronger uh, vocal cords, I think, uh, you know, singing from your diaphragm, breathing a certain way. Um, and, and still to this day, I can go through an entire, if I wanted to half day workshop without taking a sip of water, without saying the word, um, without having to take a break. Um, I have no problem. I can go all day without eating or drinking a single thing. My body is just sort of acclimated to that. So, you know, that's a pretty valid point. I've never thought about it so much on stage. I just wind up going, what can I do to keep the show going for the audience? Um, I will suffer through it. But now I don't even suffer. I mean, it's not an issue for me. So yeah, there's probably some of that early work that you do with your voice or stage and performance art and craft that gets me a little bit more of a performance element when I'm, when I'm speaking. That's a great point. Yeah. Just because your, your voice comes across as, as very switched on, you know, and, and that would, if I was in your classroom, that would immediately tune me into what you were saying. I I look at myself in this, some, in this sort of summary. And sometimes I know that I can sound like an unexcited Andy Murray. Yeah. <laughs> in terms, you know, and you just think, well, I mean, it is what it is, right? You you kind of get what you're you're given. But um I just find it fascinating because obviously you you make a living out of engaging people and uh, that must be quite important. It is. And uh and I have fun and I can see it in people's faces. And again, it probably bums me out when they're not excited, if they're not engaged. And I was just sharing this with a couple of friends of mine. I remember a Rolling Stone article where Bono uh, of U2 was being asked a question like, what do you think about when you're on stage? And he was making an analogy about a performer's psyche that if you're really in tune with the audience, you know what's going on. You know if they're not happy, if they're not paying attention, if they're going to the bathroom, if they're texting their friends, if they're going to buy a t-shirt, if they're just not engaged. And, you know, I think about people that are policemen or teachers, or in my case, as a speaker, I want to be constantly in tune. I know when somebody's walking in, walking out, what the temperature of the room, I know what my next slide is. I know what my next bullet point is. I know the story arc that I want to get to. I know if it's not resonating, if I maybe need to change my vocal inflection or stop for a second for some, you know, a pregnant pause for some anticipation. Like I, I think about all of these things at all times. And so I think when you're keenly aware of what's going on, it just makes you that much more of a performer. And again, in in my line of work, we call it edutainment, right? I I need it to be educational. I want to get the content out, but there's got to be a little bit of some entertainment, you know, factor in there as well. And so if you can find that right balance, then I think you get people engaged and believe me, it's harder to do like this, whether it's a podcast uh, interview or something on the radio, than it is if you could see my eyes and my arms. I'm, I'm standing here now flailing my arms and moving around because <laughs> that's how I am. You know, so you, you wonder how that comes across when you're trying to do a pretty stagnant webinar uh, or radio interview. So the, yeah. the fact that you say it's engaging again, I, I really appreciate it. That means a lot. That means at least we're, uh, we're, we're doing the right things to keep the engagement going, right? Yeah, for sure. And I th- I think also 
uh, well, my understanding of it is, is that obviously we all we all learn in very different ways. I would feel 100% engaged if I was in your, your classroom, but I'm guessing there must also be times where you can, maybe even if it's just one person here or one person there, where you, you're looking at them and you think they're just, they're not in, they're, they're not getting this. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Yeah. So, you know, this probably happens every once in a while. I would say when I was working for a company, a brand, it was probably a little bit more prevalent. There may be some people that are in the room because they were told they had to be there or, you know, whatever I'm talking about just isn't their cup of tea. Yeah. And I get that. But I think if you have somebody who is, again, edutaining, like like I, again, am very attracted to people that have that talent that I mentioned, singing, dancing, acting, whatever it is. And if you're compelling, you can talk about anything. You could talk about shoelaces for all I care. And I you'll have me for eight hours if at least you can <laughs> bring it with some you know, spectacular fashion. If you can bring the thunder, I'm not even sure I care about what the content is now. For some people, it's just not their thing. They're either not used to making eye contact or there's something else going on or they're they're a jokester or whatever. You know, it, it, now probably as a speaker, it does bum me out because I, I want to win them over. I'm almost talking now directly to them to see if I could, uh, you know, make friends with them by the time my uh, my talk is done. But, you know, if I've got the ability and I used to do this all the time, the tricks of the trade are one thing is you move closer to them and just by naturally organically facilitating in such a way that you're making eye contact with everybody. You're not singling anybody out, but let's say they were talking the whole time or not paying attention just by standing right beside them as if I would with anybody else in the room, they all of a sudden feel like everybody is looking at them. They're not, they're looking at me still, but they feel very conscious. So they tend yep. to focus a little bit more. I've also learned because I'm a high touch person. And of course, you know, going through the current environment, it's kind of tough to do this, but I would do this anyway. I'm very touchy feely where I might be walking around and I can easily put my hands on somebody's shoulder because I'm hanging out there and using them as a resting board. But if this is one of the problem people in the room, just by me doing that lets them know I got you. I see you. I see that All you're right. not interested, but I need you to sort of have eyes here and pay attention or whatever. You know, at the end of the day, I think there's there might always be a small percentage or somebody that, again, it's just you're not going to get to them. And uh, as long as they're not disrupting the rest of the group and they're missing out on whatever it is we're yakking about, I'm OK with that. But I'm not going to lie, Phil, it bums me out like I really want to get to everybody and I want it to be maybe not everything I do is going to be life changing but it certainly is going to be important. And somebody has asked me to be there to deliver something with excellence. And so I, I just yep. feel like, uh, you know, I've let them down. It's probably more about them than it is me, but it does, it does, you know, it frustrates me a little bit. And sometimes I'll walk away going, man, I got to the thousand, but that two, three people in the back of the room, I just wasn't their guy today. And that's okay. Yeah. And I can jerk that off and move on. Yeah. Have you heard the, the concept of uh, that there are two types of, people, uh, cats and dogs. I heard this uh, at a training. Uh, I, I'm training not sure I've heard that analogy, but lay it on me. What are they? Yeah. So I was doing a, an NLP course once, um, and I'm definitely a dog. So basically the two types are cats and dogs. Dogs are in the room and they're a typical dog. So they're, they're in there and they just want to engage with the person on stage and just be involved and they agree with everything that comes out of their mouth and they just want that person to succeed 
mm-hmm. and then the cats are in the room with their arms folded they're kind of they're you know they're waiting for this person to fail they're they're trying to be you know they want that person to prove to them that they that they should be there and not only that then the cats also mess with the dogs in the room so dogs are creatures <laughs> of habits so like if i go to a training program or a training gig at any time i'll sit in the same seat every single time i come into that room whether we've got three four five sessions i'll yeah. go back to that same seat and as will all of the other dogs but the cats they'll go out for a breakout session and come back and sit in the seats of the dogs and the dogs don't have a clue what to do. Uh, and I know that to be true because I am one of them. So I heard that at this uh, NLP training program once and I just thought, do you know what? It's a really simplistic way of looking at it, but it I actually I thought it was genius. Yeah, that that actually, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, I'm going to have to start looking at people as uh, as animals. They're either uh, they're a feral cat or they're a well-behaved dog. One of the two. Yeah, or, or just start making up your own animals as well. Just yes. uh, have, have fun. Anyway, I, I digress again. I love it. I love very, it. Very good at that. Okay, going back to your time in hospitality, um, and especially I suppose being involved in in a brand that was pretty high growth, high profile, all of these positive things. Do you have any examples of any kind of mental or or funny stories from your time? Oh man, I've been so lucky because I've had some really, really great stories. I mean, I guess one that was a little bit of a fear factor. I mean, when you say funny, the first thing I think about is when I was a kid, when I was a host, you know, one of the things we used to do, now this is back in the day before digital cameras, um, we would have guests that would always come up to us and they'd hand us a camera and say, Hey, can you take a picture of me? And and this still happens today, even, even during the land of selfies. Right. But back then uh, we, we didn't have digital cameras. And so just to be goofy and funny, we would say, yeah, we'd love to take a picture and we'll turn the camera and take a picture of ourselves. I clearly (laughs) remember that these people, you know, as a man and woman, they were on their honeymoon. They wanted one final picture with the hard rock logo in the background and I was the funny guy when they gave me the camera and took a picture of myself and immediately heard the zzz. It was the last oh, picture finished. in the camera and the film was rewinding. And, you know, we don't back then we didn't sell cameras or film or disposable anything. So I immediately went into a massive flop sweat, freaking out, thinking how upset these people are going to be. And now I've got to go tell my manager. And in fact, it was the one time I've ever been written up in my entire life. that I got (laughs) in trouble because it was just one of those, you're having fun, you're cocky a little bit. You know, we're, we're pumping so much money through here. When you open the door, there's a line of people. And when you close at night, there's people wanting to get in. And so you, you start to have a little bit of fun with the guests. And and I'm not sure I would trade any of that. It, It, that was still cool, but you know, there's some moments like that that I think came back to just bite me. Um, I'll tell you this great moment that was probably my closest knit. I've got a chance to hang out with a lot of celebrities and a lot of rock stars over the years. Um, but I had yeah. this great moment where um, the head of hotel operations and I, I was head of training, we were opening up a hard rock, almost what we call the center, meaning it's got all four elements, a hard rock cafe, hotel, a casino, and a live music venue. This is in Biloxi, Mississippi. So we opened this property up. And uh, the, 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 the very first time that we opened it up, 
um, was literally a couple days before Hurricane Katrina. So at that time, it was the biggest right. natural disaster that had ever hit the U.S. And it had come across the bottom of Florida, come through the Gulf of Mexico, and it sort of hooked directly into Biloxi. Gulfport, Mississippi is where that was. And that's where the casino was. This happened, and we had trained everybody. Everybody had gone through the training um, we were two days away from opening. There's money in all the machines. We're ready to go two days away from opening Hurricane Katrina hits. So we had to evacuate everybody. And once it ultimately hit and destroyed the bottom two floors, everything, all of our rock and roll memorabilia that was on those two floors was all, you know, it's all floating out to sea. You know, all of the materials, the uh, you know, the building was completely see-through from one end to the other. All of the machines that had money were down at the bottom of the, the ocean now. I mean, it was oh, crazy. And we had to, we basically had to start over and retrain everybody. And it took us two years to get that thing open. So we start with that story, that Biloxi is forever ensconced in hard rock lore as being this thing that had to be built twice. On the second time that we built it, my my friend who was head of operations and I were on an airplane, uh, very small, flying into Biloxi, Mississippi, and uh, the the plane's completely full. But as we were boarding, we each had, we were in aisle seats. There were window seats beside us that were both open, and there were two girls that came on late, and they had hoodies on. We couldn't really see their faces. Um, we could tell they were kind of attractive. We didn't know anything about them. We got off the plane. Um, and we're sort of joking with them because they slept the entire time while my friend and I were talking the entire time. Right. And um, as we were talking to them, they said they were going to be doing some work here in Biloxi and they were going to be at Bally's, which is a hotel casino name. And so there is no Bally's that was in Biloxi. And we thought it was a little confusing to us. And uh, and so we stopped to get a coffee. They went about their way. We went to the casino, the Hard Rock. We were doing all the training there and people were running up to us saying, you've got to go over to the Bally's machines because there's these two Playboy bunnies that are signing autographs and taking pictures. And come to find out, it was obviously these two girls and they had gussied themselves up and they had the Playboy bunny outfits on. We went over there and it was so crazy that they they stopped talking to everybody in line to scream out to us to say hello and came and hug us. And it made us sort of an instant <laughs> celebrity, number one. But then here's the part two to the story. That was fun enough. It was cool to get that fun recognition with these beautiful girls. But during that opening, we had um, a, a lot of great musicians that were hanging around. At the time, Kid Rock did the opening. I remember uh, Chris Daughtry, Daughtry the, the artist, was there. Um, we were doing some stuff with um, um, with a supermodel, Cindy Crawford, and her husband, um, who was doing some things upstairs and uh, LL Cool J was stopping by and he had been performing at a casino before. And so when we were leaving after the opening and everything was great, we were getting back on a tiny little airplane early in the morning. And it was my friend and I were boarding this flight and sitting in the area waiting to board. The only people we all sat in this little airplane together was Daughtry, LL Cool J, you know, Kid Rock um, Cindy Crawford's husband and my, my friend and, and and it was there was nobody else around and we were all sitting and hanging out talking and uh, I leaned over to my friend and I said you know what would make this flight even better he goes yeah if those two playboy bunnies were here and sure enough they walked on the flight and it was them and they were sitting <laughs> beside us and so there were like eight of us 
and we laughed and enjoyed it. And it was only probably an hour long flight. We had such a great conversation, but he leaned over to me at one point and he goes, uh, he goes, you know, if this plane goes down, nobody will ever talk about us. We're the two lesser known on this entire <laughs> flight. But it was it was our our brush with greatness. And again, I've had a lot of one-on-ones with uh, several different people of, of the Beatles and the Stones and Melissa Etheridge and, you know, you name it, uh, Dave Matthews. We've had a chance to hang out with all of these artists. But that one moment was a nice aggregate of just rock stars and moments that I'll, I'll probably never forget. Yeah, and I'll tell you one more too. I I remember we used to run a uh, in, in your neck of the woods. We ran a really big outdoor music festival in Hyde Park. So at one point, I can't remember if it was called Hyde Park Calling, but we had a we took it over for about six seven years and called Hard Rock Calling, and it's during music festival um, summertime. So Glastonbury's yep. going on, and and uh, I can't remember some of the other ones. Isle of Wight, I think, happens. Uh, around the same time. So we had hard rock calling three days, 80,000 people a day. You'd have these big artists. Um, and, and of course, because we're running it, we get to hang out backstage. And I do remember this moment, two moments, actually uh, one time where there was a huge rock and roll group. I think it was the killers that were performing out front. And so all of the, even the hard rock staff, everybody went out front to watch the killers perform, but a few of us hung out backstage and Backstage, you also get any local, um, especially if they're British uh, rock and roll celebrities or whoever it is, can come back there and they can eat and drink and they can obviously go and watch the uh, the, the artists from the sides, from the wings, if you will. Backstage, yep. with literally just a, a handful of security people surrounding them, was Justin Timberlake having an in-depth conversation um, with, with some people that I would never be able to talk about before. It was Tom Jones and Prince Harry, who at that time was dating and <laughs> was actually making out with Natalia Brulia, the artist, if you remember her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before them are sitting at the same table and off on a table by herself was Amy Winehouse, who had come back there just to, to, to grab a drink. So she was looking for free drinks. These, the other four were having a conversation, just watching you know JT and Tom Jones talk. And Prince Harry Mackin on uh, Natalie Abrulia was such a cool, awesome moment. And there's really no one else around. There were a few, you know, whatever the the, the British equivalent of Secret Service. There was, uh, you know, some people that were standing guard. But other than that, they were left alone to eat a, a, a burger backstage and have uh, obviously a drink <laughs> like Amy Winehouse. So that yeah. was cool. And at that same, it was a different year, but that same event, um, I had been invited to watch... Um, trying to think who it was. I love Crosby, Stills and Nash, but I'm not a huge, huge Neil Young fan. I am when he sings with the, with the other guys. And I didn't know a lot of his songs to, to be quite honest, but when you get asked to hang out backstage to watch some of these big artists, you just say yes. And so I said, yes, I'd go watch Neil Young. And I was on the side by myself. There's absolutely nobody else around. Everybody else was probably out front watching him or doing something else. And out of nowhere walked up Paul McCartney and his daughter, Stella. And uh, I was standing a little bit behind him. So Paul McCartney is bopping his head and he's starting to sing to some of Neil Young's songs. And I have uh, an old picture over his shoulder of Paul McCartney videotaping Neil Young. And he was singing to Neil Young's songs. And at one point he looked back at me and gave me a look like, Hey, pretty cool. Right. You know, in my best British voice. And I, I lost my mind. It was, 
yeah, yeah. That that's the extent of my uh, my my try to foreign language. He um he he. It was just such a cool moment. We didn't really have a an in depth conversation, but it was a moment that I'll never forget. And he had such a good time. He came back and headlined the next year and asked Queen Elizabeth to change the uh, the the order that she had in place about no pyrotechnics after eight o'clock because he really wanted to have some fireworks during that you know, during that. Uh, and let die and there's like explosions and you know yeah. sir paul mccartney so she allowed him to go and do that but you know if i have to think those are three four really memorable stories amongst a whole bunch of others that i could probably yak about as well yeah I, well i mean it's often that celebrities are at uh, the heart of stories uh, i think anybody that's worked in the the industry has probably had enough to to write a book yeah uh, depending Somebody on should. where yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you know the story of how LL Cool J got his name? No, I don't. So I saw this, it was on an entertainment, and I'm I'm going way off piste from hospitality, but I'll just indulge in this for a second because we're talking about rock stars and celebrities, although exactly. he's not really a rock star. But it was on a show over here called The Graham Norton Show. Oh, uh, yeah. And he was talking about, well, basically how he, he ended up getting the name i'll give you the very short version basically his real name is james something i can't remember what uh, his actual name is when he was at school he was considered to be quite cool and and the ll stands for ladies love oh yeah ladies love cool james that was the um where that came from now i don't know if that story is true but i, I, I always it remember that now that you say that quite- i've heard that before i think it is true yeah it's um, it's quite cool. I don't have any names like that. My nickname at school was Pigeon, because my second name is Street, and there was a children's <laughs> program here in the in the UK called Pigeon Street. So there we are. It's time for some rebranding. I think uh, you could be <laughs> LL Street. I like it. Yeah. So when when you're coming over to the UK for things like that, and you're bringing, I, I suppose, the the hard rock brand with you and you're doing all of those sorts of things how do you take what is essentially you know i I suppose a u.s based brand and bring it to the uk and make it uh, viable yeah well ironically it started off as a uk brand so the very first hard rock is Ah. in london and it was you know the the story really is and this is the short short version you had two shaggy haired Americans, two people that were living in London. They were pretty well off, had well-known families back in the U S but what they couldn't get was what they craved this greasy, you know, probably uh, salt, you know, flavorful hamburgers that just didn't exist in the early seventies. I mean, there was hamburger over there was just a little bit different. And so these guys wanted a little taste of America and so they they created this place like a Tennessee truck stop diner was sort of the mentality for them. And, and they also knew that back then, and, and you'll probably know this more than I would, that I think the class structure was a little bit different when you go back 40, 50 years where, you know, maybe a commoner didn't really hang out with somebody who had a little bit more of a posh lifestyle. And so, you know, the the, the line is usually the millionaire and the truck driver used to go through different doors. They had different places that they would go to or hang out or shop or whatever. So this was sort of the first 
classless restaurant, if you will, that everybody went through the same door, everybody queued up in the same place and you'd get this crazy American, you know, ribs and burgers and shakes and music and rock and roll and all that stuff. That's how it started. And so it was like that for about 20 years before they actually brought that back over to America. So, you know, it's one of these things where you would think it is a slice of America. There's no doubt about that, but What I've learned, and I opened up probably some 50, 60 properties out of the 250 that exist today, and whether they were franchise locations or joint ventures or hotels and casinos, which is a whole different animal as well, you start to think when you go into some of these countries, what we wind up hearing from people is it's going to be different here. You know, we have different styles and and etiquette and our values and our culture. And you guys are going to have to conform to that. You're going to have to behave differently here. Mm-hmm. And, and this is maybe the cocky American, you know, cocky hard rock in us back in the day. We actually thought, nah, we're going to be ourselves and you're going to conform your country around to what we're <laughs> delivering. And so I, I think it's, it's sort of this approach that uh, maybe it's because it's music and rock and roll and the authenticity and irreverence and unpredictability, and you bring that passion to it. I think what happens is people are looking for a little bit of a respite from their day to day. And so right. maybe it was an oasis to get away from whatever's going on in those particular countries. And I'm even thinking of some right now, when you think about, let's say, you know, in Asian culture, when we're in China, when we're in Japan, Everybody was convinced we'd have to act differently. We don't. If anything, we now get the the misfits who don't belong somewhere else. We attract them from a talent base and also from a consumer base. So I'm not sure there's been a ton of change. I do probably think for sure in some areas and probably in hotels and casinos, there's a little bit of a slight nod of making sure that we're not doing something that would be offensive or that would put us all in jail. But in general... I think people are looking to bring the spirit of rock and roll to everybody. And that transcends whatever local country culture exists. Yeah. Yeah. It just shows you as well that I really uh, should, should have done my research on hard rock as well as you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I lived it. I mean, I lived it for two decades and believe me, this question came up quite a bit and right. we, we experienced a little pushback every time, but when you step away from the thing and you're walking out of there going, these people knew nothing about this brand before we got here and now look at it. Not only is it thriving, but I do think it's going to influence and impact other people to think differently about their business and about their specific culture. And so, you know, on a, on a micro scale, that's what I'm doing now. I'm sort of taking the same thought and doing it in my own lifestyle. Yeah. Do you, do you have a, a favorite band? You know, it's so easy to probably say, uh, you know, the U2s of the world or the Rolling Stones or Beatles. You know, these are the ones that people know. I actually do, but most of them, people won't even know. You might know because a lot of them are very uh, British power pop, a lot of European brands um, that that you might think about. So I'm a huge Stereophonics. I know they're out of Manchester. Um, you know, and they've had so many number one albums and nobody knows who they are over here in the States. Right now we listen to, uh, I love the struts. I think they're sort of the new queen rolling stones. I love what they're doing. But if you really go back, IQ, it bites star sailor, jellyfish, My word. you know, again, a lot of keyboards, a lot of harmonies. Um, I, I dig that a lot, but you know, when I'm on stage, you can't say any of those bands to sort of make an analogy because nobody knows who they are. So I have to stick to the who and Beatles and Stones and, and right. U2. And 
that's fine. I like all of that, but you know, music is so subjective. My, my playlist is so vast and, and I yeah. even have to go back to my blues roots, my choral roots, my, my Christian roots. Like there's so much music that populates in my head. But now as I get further and further away from focusing on music and it's more about delivering messages, you know, I'm probably right down the middle of the the road with the, the bands that everybody else would probably know. But I would say Stereophonics is probably, and, and the Struts are probably my two faves. Right. Do you know, um, my answer to that question uh, changes every day, but I think in, in essence, the uh, what I learned over the years so far is that when I was at university, I was a heavy metal man. And nice. it was just, there was no other music as far as I was concerned very very focused on that but then one day i woke up and realized that um i actually now genuinely do not have a favorite genre music can kind of catch you in any form yeah and one of the um one of my main places to go now to to just get some sanctuary is actually uh movie soundtracks i am obsessed with hans zimmer absolutely obsessed. yeah oh yeah so that's and that's actually it was something I, when you were bringing up the uh, your kind of classical background and then moving into hard rock. I actually believe that there is quite a lot of crossover between classical music and and hard and heavy rock. Uh, but that's just my own yeah. personal opinion because it's very emotive. No, it's not just your opinion. A lot of people believe that, and you know, there's music appreciation classes that will take you through that and say this is where it found its roots is going all the way back to that classical music and now classic rock. I think there's, there's so much, you know, where there's a lot of similarities and I'm with you. I listen to a lot of soundtracks. Actually my favorite album, if I have to put on something is the greatest showman. Like right now, not only do I love that movie and I like musicals anyway, but the fact that they're bringing that to Broadway and there's another album, I forget what it's called, but there's a, um, there's an album out there of rock and roll artists that have covered those same songs. You know, that's the the actor, Hugh Jackman, who played uh, Wolverine in the X-Men yeah. movies. He actually is by trade uh, a, a Broadway, a stage actor who can sing. And so I, I listen to The Greatest Showman all the time just to, you know, just to prove my nerddom here a little yeah. more. I'm a huge fan of Star Trek, comic books and musicals in addition to yeah. everything else that I try and do. Excellent. I have totally taken us off track and um i uh, that's no it. that's right that's i love it pepper me with questions yeah. bring it i'm i'm, I'm digging the conversation <laughs> let's bring it back to hospitality because that's probably um that's probably relevant to the uh to the message but um you got it uh if i mean i i suppose you don't you're not directly involved in the industry anymore but obviously you you it, would it be fair to say it kind of made you the man you are oh no doubt I mean, no doubt. And I, again, I think people who understand this industry understand that there's a massive amount of commitment and hard work and passion and work ethic that comes with all of that, that, you know, and at least here in the United States, and again, I get access to data all the time, particularly from the National Restaurant Association. I can't just say the NRA, I was gonna say, people know that as the right. They can't, yeah. that's a, a full par, isn't it really? Because they, um... yeah, it's. You got to make sure you get the right one. Yeah. We, we talk about butts, not guns. So um, I, I get access um, where I think it's something like, and I'm going to make up a statistic, which by the way, you know, most speakers like myself, when we start to talk about stats, we make up statistics 84% of the time. You know that, right, Phil? 
So I'm going to, I'm going to round up and I'm going to just give you something. I hear it's around 65% of all Americans will work their first job first and foremost or in the, in the restaurant industry, you know, not necessarily in all of hospitality. I'm not sure, you know, I I don't have any stats in the hotel world, but I put all that group together. I mean, 65% their first job. Now that doesn't obviously mean that they're going to stay here. It doesn't mean they're going to make it a career, but they've all worked in that industry. And I think the people that have done that before understand the amount of, again, passion and work ethic and and the commitment comes with it. Yeah. I think it helps up the stage. For me, working in this over 30 years, you know, I say that I'm a veteran of not just the industry, but also of education. So again, mine are in and out, in and out, back and forth between those two. I, I think regardless of whatever it is you go on to do, you can't help but be better served, no pun intended, to have worked in the hospitality industry. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I think the the grounding it gives you for lots of different things that can kind of take you anywhere and in any direction uh, is phenomenal. Yeah. And notwithstanding ethic, you know, because you you do have to work hard. But to be honest, you you kind of have to do that in every industry if you want to get on. You do. There's no e- easy route uh, to that. Yeah, I agree. What. What piece of advice would you you give to somebody who was considering a career in hospitality? You know, I think um, one, I, I absolutely, again, think it is a great, great industry. It's probably not for everybody, but I think if if people were prepared for hard work, so I start with that since we were talking about it, it's not a easy career for everybody, but the rewards for me are so fulfilling. It's fast paced. Um, it's providing a service to other people. Uh, for many people, like we said, it's their first job. And so if you can make that that first job the right job, you've got that great foundation, that great experience to go on to do whatever it is you're going to do. So I start with the hard work. I, I think um, if somebody were really considering it, I, I think I would study all aspects of the business. So there's something to be said about understanding everybody's role in the business. And and number one, it'll give you an appreciation, right? You'll have more patience. You'll be able to support people better and not just be so, um, I think having your blinders on for your one position only. You ought to do that great, but you ought to also try and understand and do some cross training if you can into everybody else's role. Yep. Number, number two, I think that's going to help you grow faster, not only because you're building your skills, but you become more valuable to the organization. That's how people get promoted. You can contribute more um, I think personally, it feeds the soul. It makes your day-to-day probably more rewarding than just going in and making the donuts and only this type of donut. You know, you're learning the overall business. Um, I, I think that would be a second one and maybe even a third one. I, I, if you're going to go into this business, I would very quickly find a company or at least eventually that matches up to your values. You know, you, it, it not just a company that is there focusing on the product, but they're people oriented, they're service oriented, they're focused on the culture. You know, they're a little bit more philanthropic than perhaps their competitors. Um, there's great leadership. At least your boss has some type of a vision. You know, I think some people are just going to say, I'll, I'll take anything. And, and if that's washing dishes and busing table or housekeeping or whatever it is, great. Start with that. But don't don't do that for a long time if that's not in your heart. Yeah, I think if you're a hard worker, you focus on the overall business. But that third point is so critical. Find a, a brand that you can really match up to and say, yeah, I could see myself growing here. And I think 
once you find that, you know, it's the old adage of once you find a job that you fall in love with, you never work a day in your life. You wind up just showing up and you're hanging out with your friends. And like me, I got to look and be and say and do whatever I wanted to. And I'm hanging out with my mates and I listen to rock and roll and I got to travel and somebody's giving you a paycheck for that. Yeah. You know, that, that is in the cards for everybody if you will it into existence. So, you know, th- those are some of the things I'd probably think of right off the top of my head. Yeah. No, I, all very, very relevant. I, I couldn't agree more. Great. Okay. Well, a couple of things before I wrap this up, because I'm conscious that I've taken up quite a lot of your time. Um, uh, we'll go at it. I'll go as long as you want. I love yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know if my um, if the listeners will go go at it for as as long as we want. They to, can but... take it back. They can pause it. Yeah, we'll come back for part two. The culture that rocks your yeah. book. Yeah, talk talk to me about that because I, I admittedly because I've only known you for well known of you for two weeks. I've not I've not read it. It's now on the list. But I uh, but yeah, talk us through how that came about. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for that. It um, it definitely is a how-to business book. And I, I think I mentioned maybe at the top of the show, if you're looking to, and this doesn't happen often, if you're looking to create a, a fantastic culture, more people probably on the show um, are just thinking, I already work in an environment where I need to maybe adjust or maintain it if it's killing it or revolutionize it if it's in the ditch. How can I fix or make my culture better? How can I amp it up? That's the name of the game. So yeah. certainly I think the luxury of me working for one of the greatest brand cultures in the world has influenced me. Um, so I've got a little bit of experience around that. But at the same time, you know, I've networked and studied other brands, some who have struggled, some who do it well, and they've all helped me craft the ideas and recommendations that I basically suggest in the book. So the book definitely has a lot of music orientation to it. Um, it's got a lot of band and brand analogies to make some organizational points, but it is just absolutely rampant with great ideas and suggestions in almost every area that you could think of, whether it's philanthropy, leadership, service. I go through the entire employee life cycle and think in every area of how people come to me and how they're going to leave me. There are some things that you could do well. You know, I've just learned that, you know, if I can, if I can educate people again, sort of back to your first question around, you know, the, 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 my rock and roll lifestyle, if I can quote some rock and roll heroes, if I can use them as some learnings for the reader, if I can make it edutaining, then I think the stickiness of the content is what's going to matter most to them. So I've just learned over the years that using music as a platform, you know, it's a fine line between trying to be cool and trying to be themey. You know, you you don't want to go too far. And I'm not going to claim that that the book itself has attained that coolness, but I definitely will say that there is a massive amount of meaty content in a very fun music environment. And all the while it's, yep. it's hopefully being authentic. So you'll probably hear a lot of some autobiographical stuff from me. You definitely will feel the currents and eddies of hard rock throughout, but it's a how-to business book on how to amp up company culture. That's that's the 30,000 foot elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not to uh, blow, uh, blow too much smoke up uh, your backside, but um, uh, culture on the back of what we're going through at the moment I think there'll be a lot of companies who will will be reinventing themselves. They will uh, on, no on the back of this. Yeah, I think it's going to become even more critical today, more so than ever before. Yeah, I really do. I'd uh, I'd already read a uh, bit long before this started that uh, the next generation coming through are kind of one of the the key points for them 
as to why they would choose a company to work for is around what are you doing to make the world a better place? Yeah. Which sounds quite whimsical for for someone of my generation, I suppose, but I totally get where they're coming from because it's all pretty uh, in your face now, you know, that they're... Uh, there's a lot more that we could be doing as a as a species to to you know prolong the life of this planet. Uh, so I suppose it makes sense that um, that the kids of of today are getting behind it. It does, and and if you so if you think about that um, and break that group down, you're talking about you know today's generation, today's not just workforce but also consumers, right? So yeah, I think if somebody has a decision to make to go to brand X or brand Y as a consumer, just to go and stay, eat, drink, shop, stay, play, whatever it is, right? If you've got two like brands and one of them gives a crap about the planet and its people and recycling and gluten-free and gives a part of their profits back to some charitable cause, whatever it is, they're going to get the edge over the competitor. And I think now if you've got some people that are potential you know, teammates, you, you've got some, an employee base, the pool now thinks the exact same way. I'm going to go and work for two companies. They're exactly the same in what they deliver, but one is actually, you know, a little bit more heart led. They've, they've got a philanthropic mindset. I'm choosing that one over the other one. So, you know, I think yeah. it isn't just a, a nice to have anymore. I think business and society have to be better connected. And I think you're going to see that happen um, w- w- because of, of this mindset that you're talking about with today's uh, generation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Right. I- I'm going to probably wrap it up. Um, I can't believe it, but, um, <laughs> obviously you're, you're very, very prominent in the, in the States. Do you ever make it over here? You know, I, I go over on a vacation every once in a while. I, I tend to do some stuff every two, three years. Um, you know, I'll go to Africa, Tanzania or Ethiopia. I like trying to pick some a, a poor country where maybe I could go over there. And and uh, I'll, selfishly, I'll try and get in a, a fun vacation trip. I'll do some shopping. I'll go on a safari. But really, I'm there to help people maybe think a little bit differently about their world. And if I've got some knowledge base. I love to do that. I absolutely love going to Europe, you know, between the UK and Italy and France, some of my favorite countries I've ever been to. But I'm at the point now, the reality is I'm so busy with what I'm doing over here. And unfortunately, I've probably priced myself out. Nobody wants to spend any money for me to come over across the pond. I would, you know, if if, uh, Phil, you're looking to hire me for something, I'll come over there in a heartbeat and deliver (laughs) something. But it doesn't happen very often because the price point is just starting to get a a little bit too high. If I could tie it into something, whether it's uh, my own personal vacation or something philanthropic, it gives me a little bit more of a, um, you know, a pull desire to do it. But, um, you know, it's yeah. also one of these things where for 25 years, I got to travel the world on somebody else's dime. I'm, I'm actually pretty excited now to go into some B, C, D markets for small, you know, it's getting me a chance to to rediscover North America like I'd never seen it before. So, you know, yeah. the answer is yes. I just haven't had a lot of opportunities and it's probably because of time and money more than anything else, but uh, I'm always yeah. on for it. Yeah. Well, never say never, right? That's right. That's right. Excellent. Um, well, if people do want to reach out to you and, and, and chew the fat over anything that we've discussed here or anything else beyond, what would be the, the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, thanks, Phil. I really appreciate you asking that too. Um, you know, probably all roads lead back to my website. If you go to Night Speaker, again, my last name is Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, nightspeaker.com. They're going to see everything there that's easily found in a, on a single page, actually. It's not even multiple pages and you can just scroll down and you know, there's all my different sessions that I talk about. There's a video of me speaking on there, my books that are being sold, my training programs that I offer, any business affiliations. I've got some cool stuff going on. I got a training program called Certified Rockstar that you can go through with a great business partner of mine named Brant Menzoir, who's also my co-host on our podcast, Thoughts That Rock. So, you know, whatever it is you're looking for, you want some ongoing stuff, you want a one and done, you just want to go and check it out, watch some videos nightspeaker.com is probably the place to go to for all that fantastic no and and definitely get on it because um there's a, a whole lot of wonderful content on there on lots of things that we've discussed but a lot more besides for sure no doubt and phil thanks again for just having me as a guest on the show i love what you're doing with the uh, hospitality meets and uh, i was certainly happy to uh you know, at least virtually know of you when we were going through the uh the exp session but um i'm, I'm honored to be on your show so thanks a lot for having me Oh, that's very kind. No, the, the pleasure has been mine. It's been an absolute treat. Excellent. I'll let you get on your way. All right. Rock on, my friend. Rock on. Nice one. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. And there we have it. We hope you agree some amazing content from Jim there showing his serious and fun size in equal measure. A huge thank you to Jim for being on the show. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week, so hit that subscribe button and leave us a five-star written review. It really does make a massive difference. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.